2: Okay, welcome back to Herd Tell. He is the most visited guest in the history of the Herd Tell program because he's just that much fun. He's just that smart. He's even handsome with his new haircut and his wonderful background to the Burt Reynolds Nebula. Our good friend, Dr. Michael Siegel, how are you, sir?
0: I'm good, how are you, my friend?
2: Unfortunately, we got a little bit of a dark topic for you today, but because we respect you so much, we think this is the perfect person to talk about it. I feel about this topic kind of like I do cancer. It's like, okay, is there really more cancers, or are we just learning more about it and we see more about it and it's louder? What do you think it is when we deal with something like anti-Semitism? Because we know human nature doesn't change. We know you know prejudices and bigotries and things like that don't really change. Is there more of it, or is it just louder, faster, stronger, and the really bad people can congregate more easily nowadays?
0: I, I think it's the latter. I think there's uh, less anti-Semitism than there used to be. Um, certainly from when I grew up and, uh, in the 1980s, uh, when I was a, a kid, I didn't, wasn't exposed to a lot of anti-Semitism, but there was an incident where, uh, a cross was burned on the lawn of our synagogue while it was under construction. And, uh, I did know friends who experienced, uh, violence actually, uh, because of anti-Semitism. So I think that sort of thing is reduced. But I think in the age of the Internet, any kind of extreme voice tends to get amplified. You know, that, you know, you had, for example, you know, there was this debate in 2016 over the deplorables around Donald Trump. I think that was a very tiny fraction of the support. But with the Internet, that tiny fraction can amplify up so much so that they become very, very loud. And especially, I think, you know, the media has a tendency to give a lot of attention to people not unjustifiably so when you hear someone espousing violence and discriminatory views you you definitely want don't want to ignore that and let it fester but uh, i do think that things have gotten better generally in that and just you know and especially compared to when my father grew up and and things like that when they had you know major schools had quotas on how many jews they could admit where you know, people, he would. you know, he knew doctors who were fired because they were Jewish, you know, on a kind of slim pre- pretext. Um, he knew people in the military who were not promoted because they were Jewish. I mean, it wasn't said openly, but it was pretty obvious what was happening. That sort of thing has disappeared or at least significantly reduced. But I do think with your, when you're talking about extreme groups that are way out there, That especially with the internet, that has to have a tendency to amplify their voices and give them a very loud reach.
2: Let's back up for a second because um, I know we hear things in history, but we don't put personal faces to it. You're talking about growing up in the 80s. I've talked about, you know, when I was growing up in the 80s, even though you're a little bit older than I am, you know, we talk about that World War II generation. Like if you saw an older man, you just assumed he was a World War II vet, right? You grew up in a Jewish community you still had that Holocaust generation. There was lots of those folks. They're almost all gone now. Yes. Is there a generational difference now besides the technology and that stuff? That's just a huge generational difference because that working knowledge, unfortunately, that word of mouth tradition, that's almost gone now. Has that changed it too? And has that changed how the community views some of this stuff, do you think?
0: Um, That's a very good question. And I don't know that I have a very good answer to it. During The 1970s and 1980s were kind of an era where the awareness of the Holocaust, in particular, came into flower. But before then, a lot of Holocaust survivors would talk about how they were kind of discouraged about talking about it. I talked to a Holocaust survivor who came to this country and tried to tell his family what had happened, and they didn't want to hear about it because it was was so horrible. And there was a time when people wouldn't talk about these things, and then that started changing. And I think we, thankfully, you know, a lot of these people are dying off, but we also have the Shoah Project, which has preserved a lot of their firsthand testimony. We have a lot of great documentaries. The Shoah documentary is very long and very arduous, but I think it's very good for interviewing people on all sides, not just the people who were the victims, but the perpetrators and the bystanders and so forth. I think in the digital age, that has allowed a lot of these voices to be kept alive long after the, the survivors are going so that if you, if you seek it out, if you want it, you can, you can find that information. I mean, there has been a tendency to, 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 to sort of try to bury these things in the past. Uh, just to give another personal example, uh, in the 1910s, a businessman named Leo Frank was accused of murdering one of his uh, workers, a, a young teenage girl, and uh, was, almost, was very likely innocent. And was lynched, but was convicted and eventually lynched by a mob. My grandparents grew up during that. They were teenagers. They would not talk about it until the 1980s. Then people started talking about it, and there were movies about it. And suddenly they were, you know, it, they were reluctant, but people would talk about it then. So these these willingness to talk about these things kind of waxes and wanes. But I think. Uh, as you know, we are losing that firsthand testimony, but with the digital age, and especially the show project, that has allowed a lot of that firsthand testimony to be preserved.
2: You said something really important, Dr. Michael Siegel, joining us, our very good friend here on Tell. I think you said something really important about that project, that yes, they interviewed the survivors, and they interviewed some of the perpetrators. One of the really important groups that we don't talk about, and it's not just anti-Semitism, it's race-based hatred, religious-based hatred, class, whatever kind of hatred you want to talk about, the bystanders, because that's the group that does the enabling. That's the group that usually controls the power structure that the hatred operates out of. Anytime you have hatred and abuse that comes from hatred, there's that big swath of bystanders. And I think, this is my opinion, you tell me what you think. I think what we're seeing digitally is, yeah, I think it's better in the real world, but digitally... I think you're getting some real hard dividing lines between that extreme element. But I think the people that are bystanderish or bystanderish tendencies are really exposing themselves online in this day and age. Is that uh, fair to say it that way?
0: I, I think so. Um, you you can look at, at history and see that the kind of horrors we talk about with the Holocaust or even just separating from the Holocaust to, to other to other incidents in, the, in history with other groups that have been oppressed or in this subject of mass murders the vast majority of people just sort of want to go along you know they they I mean, they might be against it but they don't want to do anything about it and they just want to get through their day and and so forth and that what that does is it enables those tiny minorities of really bad people that gives them the freedom to act and so I think, you know, I mean, not just when we're talking about anti-Semitism, when we're talking about any sort of ism, there is a responsibility of people to to speak out and say, no, this is not acceptable, and and to oppose when they can. Because the vast, you know, one of the things I've, I've said on my uh, YouTube channel is I, the vast majority of people are good. But we are very easily tempted when there's, you know, something at stake like money or honor. To do the bad thing, we're very good at rationalizing not acting when we see something, you know, that's wrong, and uh, that's a that's a t- difficult tendency to overcome, but one that we sort of have to, and especially in this digital age, when extreme voices, even if you're talking about only one percent, can be amplified up so dramatically and can have such dramatic power, um, way out of proportion to their numbers. I think uh, there is responsibility of people to uh, to not stand by.
2: yeah dr michael siegel join us i i find it interesting like i've seen it in my own children i have teenagers through young adults now as children especially the two younger teens they just have zero tolerance for for stuff like this because they've been you know you know they're very very online they've been you know they've moved around the world a little bit i hope that i've tried to teach them a little bit along with their mother but mostly it's just them they have such a basis of knowledge because of the technology they're exposed to a wide swath of culture that you know previous generations weren't they have zero tolerance for this stuff. Like as soon as they hear some, they're like, oh, no, that's racist or that's anti-Semitic or that's quiet. Like they just zero tolerance for it. Inside of the community, though, because you're raising your own children now. What is it like now in the digital age? Because it is different. It's more Maybe it's more online than just somebody making a comment on the street like it used to be then. How does that change in the online communities inside of the Jewish community, especially like you're raising your own kids? Because now you've got this whole digital sphere that's a whole different ballgame, isn't it?
0: Yeah, and it'd be difficult for me to speak to for the entire Jewish community because everyone's experience is different. I would say that talking to people, it seems like they're more, there's less fear of the kind of institutional discrimination and so forth that used to be faced and used to be more common where you had you know clubs that would exclude Jews and colleges that would have quotas on Jews and that sort of thing, and more fear of, you now what happened in Pittsburgh, where a lone guy, you know with you know hatred amplified by internet voices, went in into the synagogue and massacred a bunch of people? There's more fear, I would say, of that sort of the power of a single person to do horror than there is of institutional horror at this point. But again, that might not be the perception of other people, so I'd be hesitant to speak for everyone. But like you, I've seen with my daughter the same thing. She's, you know, the she also has very little tolerance for that sort of thing. And uh, and her school has sort of that tolerance. There was a, a thing at one of the schools where some kid wore like, a, a, had like a Nazi symbol. And they, this was, this caused a lot of controversy because the vast majority of students were like, this is not cool, this is not funny, this is not ironic. You need to get rid of that.
2: Michael Siegel joining us again. That's Dr. Michael Siegel to you folks. If we're talking science, when we're just talking on Ordinary Times, we just call him Hal because of his uh, Twitter handle that you see there. You mentioned Pittsburgh. Unfortunately, we know what happened at the Tree of Life Synagogue. We've had other instances of it. Thankfully, the recent headlines have been thwarted attacks, but there are people out there that keep targeting Jews and Jewish communities and synagogues. I lived in Germany twice. Uh, synagogues on holy High Holy Days and on, you know, for normal weekly service they have armed police out front they just do that's just reality over there the house i'm a baptist the house of worship i worship at. in fact the last two churches i've attended they both have armed security during service or i won't attend there that's something i'm just cognizant of do y'all think about it you mentioned it how readily is it in people's mind when they're just going to a normal service or shabbat or whatever the case may be a high holiday maybe especially is it on people's minds because it's got to be part of the thought process after things like Pittsburgh, right?
0: Yeah. I mean, it's certainly with the, with the rash of mass shootings we've had uh, recently, um, that sort of thing has been on people's minds. I mean, and just, you know, when we had the mass shooting in Texas, there were teachers outside the schools, there were police outside the schools, right after the, uh, tree of life shooting, there were, you know, that was in our state. So there were armed guards outside of our synagogue, it's not something that I would say is distracting. It's just something that you, you sort of have to do um, that, you, that, unfortunately, you have to think about. Um, but again, you know, that, that would plug into what I was saying earlier about how the fear is less of institutional stuff and more of a rogue agent. And it's, it's not surprising that this has popped up with some of these crazy conspiracy theories going on because, you know, eventually they will circle around to anti-Semitism. It's very easy we're a very small minority, you're not talking about 92% of the American population. And there are very easy tropes to fall back on with, you know, oh, Jews control the banks and all that sort of thing. Um, so it's, it's a very uh, lazy hatred to fall back on for a lot of these extremists. So it's, it's not surprising, but um, it's just something that you that you have to, you know, sort of deal with.
2: Yeah, unfortunately. Uh, Michael Siegel joining us. All right. That's the history and the cultural side of it. Unfortunately, we've got some real world examples and it's not just Internet people. Uh, It's people seeking office and two people that are actually heads of states of powerful countries. We're going to go through that. Michael Siegel joining us once again on Tell. We'll continue right after this. Uh, Welcome back to Herd Tell. Dr. Michael Siegel, one of our favorites, because he's on this program more than any other guest. Long may it continue, my friend, because you give good content, sir, among all your other great accomplishments in life. Joining us, he's a scientist, but we're talking a little more culture stuff today. Okay, we're talking anti-Semitism. Unfortunately, I wish this was all just a philosophical exercise, but it is not because we have real world people, one seeking power, two people that are heads of states that have issues in this regard. Let's start right in your backyard, Pennsylvania. Uh, Doug Mastriano is running for um, office there. He wants to be governor. He has gotten himself in some trouble with a financial backer from the guy that started up Gab. And I don't want to rehash this because we already talked about Gab before. Uh, Gab is a cesspool. It was purposely built to circumnavigate certain rules. And I'm not saying everybody on there does this, but this is what it was designed to do. Uh, It's so you can say stuff there that you can't say in regular polite society, including a lot of racist and anti-Semitic things. Uh, There's financial ties there. The founder, Andrew Torba, came out and made comments. Um, I don't want to take this out of context, so I will quote him. He basically came out and said, well, we don't give interviews to any reporters that aren't Christians, uh, meaning Jewish reporters. Uh, he said he was getting consulting fees yesterday. Mastriano came out and denied all this said, no, he doesn't have anything to do with my campaign. I don't tolerate anti-Semitism how does that's a lot to unpack, but this is not a new story If you're taking money from somebody and they have bad ties, you can parse that part out in. How does this land for you because this is this is an election you have to vote in, and that will affect you because you live in Pennsylvania,
1: yeah,
0: and I, I can't look into. Pastoriano's heart, so I don't know if he's if he is anti-Semitic or not. I'd never heard anything particularly about that before this uh, scandal erupted. So I I have a tendency to give people a benefit of doubt, which maybe I shouldn't, but uh, I, I hesitate to accuse someone of anything. I do think that you are playing with fire when you associate with people like that. I mean, and and it, again, doesn't have to just be anti-Semitism. It can be any sort of ism where people are saying racist things or homophobic things or anything like that, when you associate with people like that, when you take their coin, that that affects you, that affects how people perceive you. And so I think the that, um, you know, I'm glad he's, you know, said, come out and said he's against anti-Semitism. I, you know, think that refusing this person's money would be uh, a little more uh, demonstrative. We have seen politicians in the past return money from groups that uh, that didn't back that back them up that they thought were too extreme and and they didn't want to be associated with it there's tons of money in politics so there's not a, a shortage of places to get money from especially when you're running for governor of a major state uh, I remember this came up a few years ago with the uh, ron Paul campaign that there were you know stormfront people and other neo-nazis sort of backing him up and uh, the response was well should we just give him you know we're taking away their money. Maybe we that's good to not have, have the money. And I was like, no, you, you don't want to take these people's money. Um, the the thing about anti-Semites and bigots in general with politics is they, I have described them as the barnacles of the political world. They have a tendency to glom onto anyone that they see as an outsider. You know, 10 years ago, it was Ron Paul, even though Ron Paul wanted to like end the war on drugs and let lots of people out of prison, which you think the Nazis would be against, because he was perceived as an outsider and because they're always outsiders, they just glommed onto him. And then they sort of glommed onto Trump because he was an outsider. And now I think they're glomming onto, they might be glomming onto this campaign. I mean, it's just one guy, so we have to see what else is going on. But it's, I am hesitant to read, into a politician's views and philosophy and character the views of the more extremist supporters but i do think uh, a basic decency would require you to dissociate yourself from people like that
2: is it the money or the rhetoric that bothers you more and i know in politics they're kind of go together but would, would some words and action be more meaningful here or is giving the money back more meaningful do you think uh,
0: I think that they're both important. I think you, you both have to say that this is unacceptable and you have to say, I don't want to be associated with that person.
2: All right. Somebody who does have a tremendous amount of power, uh, Matriano just once said he doesn't have it yet. Uh, over in Russia, some really ugly stuff is going on. This is a little detailed. We'll link to it in the show notes. Folks can go in and read it for themselves. But basically, long story short, Vladimir Putin is threatening to shut down the Jewish agency in Russia That is the agency that returned. Israel has a right of return. Anybody that has Jewish blood back to their grandparents has a right to citizenship in Israel. Something like a million people from Russia has gone to Israel. It's a huge part of Israel's original immigrant population. He's threatening to shut all this down now all of a sudden. There's geopolitical involved in this because Israel's been kind of a go-between during this Ukraine war crisis and a lot of other things. Russia's got a long history of this kind of stuff, and Vladimir Putin specifically has a bad history with certain groups. This is anti-Semitism on a global geopolitical level, yeah?
0: Uh, yeah, but I also think it, it's more related to Putin's sort of desperation and dementia with what's going on in the world. The, you know, he's got the West united against him. The war in the Ukraine has not gone as well as he wanted to and especially at the hands of a Jewish president. I think that um, this is sort of him lashing out uh, in frustration, uh, more more than anything else. I, I think the one thing, the only guide star that we are certain of with Vladimir Putin's philosophy is he favors Vladimir Putin. And he favors building Russia up to be more like the imperial Russia of the past, or that he imagines imperial Russia to have been in the past than it is now. and. I think any and every group is just someone he's willing to step on to get there. And so Jews are an easy target. Uh, and it also try, tries to keep Israel in line and other countries in line. But uh, I don't think it's necessarily indicative of a coming storm or anything like that. But you never know. I, I hesitate to look into someone with this disease in a mind as Vladimir Putin.
2: Yeah, I don't blame you for that, even if it's not directly related at the Jewish community, though, when he does something like with Ukraine, where he starts in with the anti-Nazi stuff, which has all those overtones to go with it, that's still got to just land wrong, though, with the Jewish community, right? It, I, I mean, yeah. I'm just normal people recoil at that. I imagine it's got to be specifically really perks up the ears of Jewish community, like anti-Nazi, what are you doing?
0: Yeah, and that's, again... A lot more connected to internal politics of Russia that you have with Russia. This memory of the Great Patriotic War and the Nazis invading Russia and killing millions and millions of Russian people and so forth. So it's 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 connected with that as much as it is anti-Semitism. That this long history and their you know pride in winning the the you know their part of World War Two against uh, the the Nazis. But yeah, and especially given what's going on in. Ukraine is basically an ethnic cleansing of Ukrainians. Uh, given the history of trying to ethnically cleanse uh, Ukrainians, Jewish or not, you know, I mean, Ukraine has always had a large Jewish population. But uh, I, you know, last year I read um, in Applebaum's fantastic book, *Red Famine*, about the Holod- Holodomor, and you know, I, I think that it's less connected with anti-Semitism than it is on Putin trying to. Weaponize the rhetoric of the past, trying to otherize the Ukrainians, trying to justify. And we have over a million Ukrainians deported to Russia. We have children being torn away from families. This is absolutely an ethnic cleansing. And you don't have to necessarily be killing Jews to be in that in that Nazi category. I think if you're ethnically cleansing a country, you're Nazi adjacent. If you're not actually there,
2: separating um, countries and politics. From stuff like this is hard it doesn't get any harder than when it comes to the nation of Israel where do how do we parse that one out because the real bad faith actors that want to be anti-semitic who cannot stand the Jewish people for whatever twisted reason they have they love to work in that gray space of like oh we're not anti-Jewish we're anti-Zionist and then they start parsing that out I know it's tough to delve into that but that's just the reality we are in what do you do with that because like you're saying with Russia you know Israel is also a country um, not everybody in Israel is a Jew. They have other minority groups as well. How do we handle that one without delving into those dark regions where those people start grabbing people and twisting their minds and twisting their words with it?
0: Uh, it's it's tricky that you you have an Israeli government that has done things that a lot of people disagree with, yeah, with, the, with the West Bank and so forth. Um, that I think even people who support the existence of Israel and the nation of Israel have problems with. And so you have a large middle ground and so forth. But it is, you know, what I like to say is that, you know, if you're anti the state of Israel, you're talking about dismantling the state that is the homeland to basically half of the Jews in the world, and dismantling a state that has protected those people for, you know, almost going on 75 years now. And so it's one thing to oppose Israel's expansion of the West Bank. It's one Thing to oppose how they're acting in, say, the Gaza Strip or something like that, but to you know be against the existence or to have favor of one-state solution, I think is is uh, I don't know if it's necessarily anti-Semitic, but you're you're talking about uh, a set of policies and a set of positions that is would many people would be considered dangerous to the continued uh, survival of that state.
2: I guess it's kind of like with Ukraine where I'm like, yes, Ukraine has issues and they're not a perfect country either, but they don't deserve to be wiped off the map either. I yes. think we can say the same with Israel. Like I can, I can support Israel as a concept and as a friend and as an ally, I can condemn them when they do individual things wrong. You still don't get to wipe them out because of whatever problems they have as a country. That's, that's way too far. And then we need to hash out the gray area. Is that the yeah, fair the problem, way to it.
0: Yeah. The problem with, if you're, if you're talking about, you know, if you disagree with what they're doing in the West Bank or Gaza, The problem is not the existence of the state of Israel. The problem is the people leading it right now. The people who are leading, although they've just had a change in leadership, so that may that may change things. Um, But yeah, I think that's a perfect way of putting it. That we can be allies with country. We can support a country. We can support the existence of country while still disagreeing uh, with uh, even vociferously with some of the policies they're engaged
2: in. Yeah. Tough topic today. Really hard questions. You didn't duck any of them, even when I didn't ask them really particularly well. That's why, my friend, you still we need to get you one of the like wrestling belts, like most (laughs) most steam guests on the show. And you can have it over your shoulder every time you come out until somebody takes it from you. Uh, We'll look into doing that. It might have to be a screen graphic because we have no budget. Uh, Dr. Michael Siegel, you do wonderful work, sir. Um, on the road and appearing anywhere, greatly appreciate that. Let folks know where they can follow you and what you have going on writing-wise until they see you again.
0: Uh, I'm, I'm uh, away this week, but uh, nor, ordinarily I appear or at least once a week on Ordinary Times, Ordinary-Times.com. Uh, you can see how underscore R-T-F-L-C is where you can follow me on Twitter. You can also just go to YouTube and Google Mike's and check out Mike Siegel Astronomy where I talk about uh, astronomy and movies, including uh, addressing your favorite movie of all time. Uh, so, yeah, it's I'm not difficult to find.
2: Uh, Michael Siegel, appreciate you, my friend. Yeah, the, the YouTube channel, is that was an Armageddon dig. It's not my favorite movie of all time, but it's my favorite movie to throw at astronomers at all time because it just drives them crazy because of all the inaccuracies. But go watch the YouTube channel. It's fantastic stuff. You're a fantastic guest. You're an even better friend. Thank you for the time today, my friend.
0: Oh, always glad to be on. Thanks for having me.
2: Yes, sir. Talking soon.